You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us and just the, uh, you know, the, the remnant that's left over after all these women were at, at the retreat. So now it's uh, really looking forward to our time together on this Palm Sunday, Sunday before Easter celebration. Oh, it's going to be great. Well, last, last week uh, we began a new series called Meals with Jesus, and I, I kicked off this series uh, with the uh, goofy question, if you uh, could share a meal with anybody in history, who would you choose? And uh, just, <laughs> aim higher, Q. <laughs> the uh, of course, the church answer there is either Jake Box or or Jesus. So you know, Jesus is that really the church answer? And uh, you know, I know that. I know we all feel like, oh yeah, well, I'm supposed to say that. But as I said last week, um, if you were to actually pick Jesus to share a meal with, you would be making a great choice because he is widely regarded as the you know one of the, if not the most influential people who has ever lived. And so that seems like a good person to to grab a meal with if given the opportunity. Now, uh, especially when you think about like the fact that Jesus being the most one of, one of the or the most influential person ever lived, it's kind of a wild idea that Jesus would have the influence that he has had. It, it, it really doesn't com- like compute on a surface level when you know about his life. Like I think about what the uh, author J. Warner Wallace wrote in his book, Person of Interest. I think this is a good kind of summary of Jesus. He says, uh, Jesus was born in a tiny, irrelevant town in the Roman Empire and raised in another small village. He had to walk from one place to the next. And as an adult, he never traveled more than 200 miles from the town where he was born. He never held a political office. He never ruled a nation, never led an army, never authored a book. His family was insignificant. The locals suspected he was an illegitimate son. His mother was a poor peasant woman, and his father couldn't afford much. Jesus didn't receive an expensive education, never married, never had children, never owned a home of his own, didn't possess much more than the clothes on his back. As an adult, his own brothers were suspicious of his ministry, which was a work that extended, that ended just after three short years. When public opinion turned against him, most of his followers abandoned him. One disciple betrayed him and another denied him. He was rejected by the religious, uh, hunted by the powerful, mocked and unjustly persecuted by his enemies. He suffered an unfair trial, was publicly humiliated, brutally beaten, and unduly executed in the most horrific way. And even then, the few followers who remained had to borrow a grave to bury him in. See, um, 
unlike the founders of other major world religions, unlike Muhammad or the Buddha or Confucius or Moses, Jesus died at a relatively young age, alone, stripped, naked, crucified, and crying out about God forsaking him. Now, in light of that, why in the world has Jesus had the impact that he has had on the world today? And why, why would people, you know, want to have him as their spiritual leader, right? I mean, why, why would people, uh, we want to Jesus to say, okay, I want to build my life around him, or as we say, as a church, we want to practice the way of Jesus together. Why, why would Jesus have the influence that he has had? Well, I think uh, the answer to that is that in large part, it's because people have been drawn to Jesus and they have had their lives changed by Jesus as they have grasped the meaning of his death. The meaning of his death. See, the way that, uh, and the way that Jesus communicated the meaning and the purpose of his death is kind of interesting. Do you know the primary way that he communicated that to his followers? Did you know that it was... Uh, over a meal, or perhaps, better put, it was actually through a meal, a meal that he shared with his closest friends, uh, probably the most famous meal uh, in the history of the world that we know it as the Lord's Supper. And uh, as we continue to uh, this series, Meals with Jesus, what we're going to do this morning is we're, we're going to consider how the Lord's Supper communicates the meaning and the purpose of Jesus' death. And we're going to look at that because, one, as we head into uh, this week, Passion Week, Good Friday on Friday, celebrating that on Friday and Easter on Sunday, it, it will help us just kind of, you know, it'd be helpful to consider the meaning and purpose of Jesus' death. But also, we're going to look at it because, uh, just like I said a minute ago, like, it's one of the main things that's led people to give Jesus this role of influence and authority in their life when they understood why he died for them, why he died. To say, okay, I want to build my life around you. And so today, to help us get ready for Easter and to remind us or perhaps to help you understand to where hopefully you would come to a point where you would want to do this where you would say, okay, now I get it. Now I get the big deal about Jesus. Now I know why I want and why others have given him the influence in their lives that they have. It's because of this. So to, to look at the meaning and purpose of Jesus' death, we're going to look at Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 22 through 25. So if you want to go there, or also have the, the words up here on the screen behind me. And um, now before I read this, uh, let me just quickly give you a little bit of uh, context, because the occasion of this meal that we're about to talk about uh, was very significant for two reasons. The first is this. It took place on the night before Jesus would be crucified. 
That this meal that we're about to look at, Jesus ate the night before he'd be crucified. Later this night, he would be betrayed by Judas and handed over to the authorities. Less than 24 hours, he would be crucified. So that's, keep that in mind. The second reason the occasion of this meal is important is because it took place on the night when the Jews celebrated the annual Passover meal. And the Jews were celebrating the Passover meal. Okay, so on that night... During that meal, the Passover meal, is when Jesus communicated the meaning and the purpose of his impending death the most clearly. Look at what he says in Mark 14, verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and They all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, if you grew up in church or you've been around Midtown for long, uh, these words are going to be really familiar to you. We say them every Sunday when we take communion together. Um, and so uh, hopefully they're meaningful to you. Hopefully that they, they carry some weight for you, but I highly doubt that they shock you like they would have uh, Jesus, his disciples on that night. See, uh, what, when Jesus said these words, his disciples, they would have been floored. I mean, they would have been thinking, what, what did he just say? They would have been shocked. They would have been confused. There's a good chance that they would have even really been offended. And here's why. It's because what Jesus does in this meal is that he uh, takes this celebration, the Passover meal that the Jews had celebrated up to that point for over a thousand years, and he, he makes it all about him. It would be kind of like if I were to say, um, okay, hey, I know Easter's next Sunday, and that's gonna, we're really looking forward to that, but I just want you to know that we made a, I made a decision as a, you know, that for Midtown, we're going to celebrate Easter differently from this point on. That Easter is actually no longer going to be about celebrating Jesus' resurrection. Easter's going to be about an opportunity for us to gather the church to, to celebrate my wedding anniversary which just happens to be tomorrow, and Chris and I celebrating 19 years together, so just letting you know that. Yeah. The, um, so because it falls right by Easter, we're just going to, we're going to gather, uh, instead of celebrating Easter norm, like normal, we're going to celebrate my wedding anniversary. If I said that and you thought I was actually serious, you would be highly offended. You would be thinking, okay, who do you think you are to make Easter, you know, all about you, Right? And then you would leave the church, or if you, you know, you should leave the church if, if I were to do something like that, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. But like, friends, I'm not exaggerating. When Jesus said these words on this Passover meal, that's what it felt like for his followers, for his disciples, the guys he was sharing this meal with. See, they, uh, it would have shocked them. 
But it's lost on us because we don't fully understand the significance of the Passover meal and, and how Jesus like turned it towards him and how he broke with the tradition of a thousand years when he said this and what, with what he did. And so what I want to do is just take a minute and, and try to help you understand that element of it all so that we can feel the weight of what his disciples were feeling. And so more importantly, we can understand the meaning that Jesus was giving to his impending death. Okay. So you, you with me? Can you stay with me as I kind of explain Passover a little bit more to y'all? Okay. All right. Well, first thing you need to know, Passover uh, was and still is the, the most, you know, one of the most, if not the most important Jewish celebrations. Every year, uh, family and friends gather together to share the Passover meal, and they do this to commemorate and celebrate how God rescued their people from Egyptian slavery. That's, that's the big thing that they're celebrating. It's the occasion of the Passover meal. Now, traditionally, at a Passover meal, there is a presider over the meal, and their job is to bless and explain the different elements of food elements, drink elements that are used during the meal to commemorate and celebrate God's rescue of the Jews from Egypt, all right? And so, for example, if you, if you were to attend a Passover Seder or Passover meal today, there will, you will find that there are four cups or there will be four pours of wine during the meal set up differently at different places. But each one of those cups or pours will represent something specific, actually something specific built out of Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. Let me just read that for you. It says, this is, this is God speaking. He says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, and I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And so they would take this, these, huh, this, these promises from God made to Moses to eventually to the people of Israel, and they, they would commemorate them at a, in a normal traditional Seder uh, by these four cups. The first cup would represent uh, that God's promise that he was going to free them from slavery. This cup is often referred to as the cup of sanctification. That's the first thing that they would hold up, the presider would hold up this cup and say, okay, this cup represents God's promise that he's going to bring us out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And they would drink that together. Then they would move to a second cup. The second cup is called the cup of deliverance and represented God's promise that he would free them from slavery. As it says, I will free you from being slaves to them. And they would remember that. They would commemorate that, celebrate that, drink that cup together. Now, later in the in the meal, you get to a third cup. The third cup is known as the cup of redemption, which represented God's promise to redeem them, not by their power, but by his power, his outstretched arm. And then there would be a fourth cup. The fourth cup, often known as the cup of anticipation or the cup of praise, it represents the relationship God desires to have with his people. It's that last line, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. So, get the idea, the presider 
over the meal. He stands, he, he holds up the first cup, reminds the family, his friends, how God's promised to rescue them from the yoke of slavery. Then they would drink of the cup or they'd pass the cup around. Then he'd take the second cup, he'd do the same. But then after the second cup, it's, it's time for the meal. And Passover meal includes herbs and bread and lamb. And somewhere near the end of the meal, the presider will stand once again and will explain and bless the different elements that they have just eaten, beginning with the bread. And so the presider picks up the bread and he breaks it and he says something like, uh, this is the bread of our affliction, reminding us of how our ancestors were afflicted as slaves before being free. But on this night, the night before the cross, Jesus, as the presider over the Passover meal, takes the bread and he breaks it, but he says something different. He says something that uh, would have, again, shocked his disciples because he doesn't say the traditional explanation of the bread. Instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Or as Mark 14 says, take it, this is my body. Meaning, this bread now, that has for a thousand years represented the affliction, the broken bodies of the, of the slaves in Egypt no longer represents that, that this now represents how my body will be broken for you. Because I'm telling you, this would have shocked his disciples. Because it's like, well, wait, what? That's, that's not, you got the line wrong, Jesus. That's not what you're supposed to say. That's not what, you know, that's not what the meaning of the bread is. It's, it's about our reflection. It's not about your body. How, how are you making this about you? This, see, Jesus, he was, he was rewriting the meaning of this meal. It would have shocked them. But Jesus wasn't done. For after blessing and explaining the meaning of the bread, normally the presider would bless and explain the meaning of the main course, the lamb. Right? And the, the main course, the lamb was the main course because the, the lamb was the central figure of the, of the very first Passover. And so this would have been a big part to explain to, to his disciples. But uh, he doesn't do that. Now, again, that's kind of lost on us here because you know, how many times have you read through the, the Lord's Supper and just like been like, why doesn't he mention the lamb? You know, are you usually saying that? Like, where's the lamb? But they would have been thinking that because the, the lamb really is, you got to know the Passover story. The Passover story is this, that, it, that Israel is in bondage to Egypt. They're be unjustly and cruelly being lorded over by Pharaoh. And so God, who hates all evil and injustice, intervenes. And God comes to Moses in Exodus chapter 11, and he says, I'm going to pour out my divine justice and judgment for one night in order to free 
Israel from slavery. Now, up to this point in the story, God has already sent nine other plagues, right? Nine plagues to cause Pharaoh to let his people go. You know the line? But uh, to no avail, Pharaoh has refused to let them go. And so God tells Moses he's sending a final and most severe plague, the plague of death. And in this judgment, God would send the angel of death to kill the firstborn son of every household in Egypt and in Israel. Which is kind of weird, right? Because it's like, well, wasn't this done in order to free the Israelites from Egyptian slavery? Why would this judgment fall both on Egypt and on Israel? That's a good question. The reason why is because the judgment of death isn't intended to judge just one type of sin, but sin itself. As the Apostle Paul would later write in the book of Romans, it's the wages of sin is death. And so God tells Moses that when my justice comes down for this one night, it will not matter what race you belong to. Egyptian, Israelite, everyone's going to be subject to my justice and judgment. And so every household is in danger. But God does tell Moses that uh, a household could be spared from this judgment if they killed a lamb. If they killed a lamb, if they ate it that night, and they took the blood of that lamb and they smeared it on their doorposts, and God says that that family, that, that household, would be spared. God promised that they could take shelter under the blood of the Lamb and be saved. And that the angel of death would literally pass over them, which is where you get the name of the celebration, Passover. In other words, the only way that a family would be saved from suffering the judgment, the just judgment of God, as if they took shelter under the blood of a substitutionary lamb. Now, <laughs> I recognize that that's all very dramatic sounding, and it, and it probably raises a number of questions, I get that. Uh, perhaps one of the questions, though, that it raises would be this. Um, why, why would a lamb... Why would a lamb be what would save a family from judgment? I mean, what's a woolly lamb got to do with any of this? Why, why, why do you got to kill a lamb in order to not be justly judged for your sin? Well, it's not because of the, like, oh, well, God just really loves lambs and he wants you to kill them. Now, it, it, it's because there's, the lamb was pointing to something else. The lamb, all along, and all of the sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews makes very clear, they always were meant to point to something else. And on this night, this Passover meal, the day before Jesus would die on the cross, Jesus leading his friends through the meal as a presider over it, mentions the bread and says it's his body. And he skips over the lamb. 
He doesn't mention the lamb at all. You read through all the gospel accounts, you don't see, there's no mention of the lamb. All four gospel accounts. Why is that? Well, it's because at this meal, at this time, this, the, the, the focus was not on the lamb that was on the table. It, 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 the focus was on Jesus, the, the lamb of God who was leading them through this meal, presiding over the table. You see, for those who are familiar, um, what, did, what did John the Baptist famously say when he saw Jesus? You remember? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why would John call Jesus a lamb, right? I mean, it's kind of, kind of weird, right? But he did that because of something that the prophet Isaiah wrote 600 years prior in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, that Isaiah is prophesying about the coming suffering servant who is going to be the Messiah, though people were confused about that at the time. Like, who is this suffering servant? He's talking about him, and he says this in Isaiah 53. He says, he was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, it's, it's, it's off of that that the, John the Baptist would say, look at Jesus and say, Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world. And here in this meal, Passover meal, you have the Lamb of God who doesn't mention the Lamb, but instead, breaking with tradition, skips straight to the third cup. The third cup. Remember, the third cup represents God's promise to redeem his people, not by their power, but by his power, Right? But on this night, Jesus took the third cup, and that's not what he said. Instead, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And again, his disciples would have thought, wait, what? That's, that's not what the third cup represents, Jesus. But he would say, now, this is, this is what it actually has meant to represent all along. See, the reason how God saves you from being enslaved by his power, not by your own power, the way that he does that is ultimately through what I'm talking about right now. It's through my blood. It's through me. It's I'm how God will rescue you. By his power, not by your power. This is the cup of the covenant, of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. I can't think of a more powerful way for Jesus to communicate the meaning of his death than through this meal on that night. 
He intentionally chose the Passover meal to communicate that, the, that he is the lamb of God to which the, all other sacrificed lambs have been pointing to. That he is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world so that the judgment of God can pass over all who take shelter under him. That he is our substitutionary sacrifice who died in our place to set us free from sin, whose body was broken for us and whose blood was spilled for us to redeem us from sin, not by our power, but by his. And friends, just, just like held in the original Passover meal, which was observed the night before Jesus, I mean, before God redeemed his people from slavery to Pharaoh. So, the Lord's Supper took place directly the night before Jesus would go to the cross to redeem his people from slavery to sin and death. Now, that's, that is it's powerful. I think, that's, I think that's beautiful. But for many of us here, just kind of our modern ears, we hear that and we think, is that, was any of that really necessary? I mean, what's up with God? Why, why the sacrifices? Why the, why the blood? Why the gore, right? I mean, what, what's, like if God really wants to love us, then why can't he just love us, right? I mean, he's God. And so, like, what, what's the point of all this? If, if God wants to forgive us, then why does he just forgive us? What's, what is the point of all of this? Like, what's, what's up with that? Well, allow me to speak to that question, because I, I'm sure that many of us have it. And I want to speak to it by uh, just quoting one of my heroes in the faith, uh, pastor and author Tim Keller. And, and Tim Keller, when addressing those kinds of questions, he, he just points out that whether we realize it or not, all of real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. In fact, here's the quote. He says, you have never loved a broken person, a wounded person, or a hurting person a person in trouble except through substitutionary sacrifice. If you loved a nice person, a person whose life is all pulled together and everything is fine and they don't need any changes, it, it costs nothing. And he says, it's, it's wonderful and it's fun. And there are four or five people like that in your city and you should try to find them and become their friends. <laughs> I love that. But, he goes on to say, if you ever try to love someone who has needs, who's in any way broken, who has trouble or is in trouble, or is emotionally wounded, or is go it is going to cost you. And you can't love them and bring them up without you going down to some degree. You can't lovingly help them without some aspect of their troubles or problems transferring to you to some degree. For all of real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. And just to kind of help us 
continue to wrap our mind around this idea, I mean, just think about it. Think about it, how there are a lot of emotionally wounded people and hurting people that are just feel like they're emotionally, they're just sinking. They desperately need to be loved. But friends, when you know someone like that who's emotionally hurting and wounded, uh, you're tempted to avoid them. I mean, so am I, just to be honest. And why, why are we tempted to avoid them? When they call, why, why are we tempted not, not to answer? Send that one to voicemail. Well, it's because we know uh, that it's drained to be friends with someone who's emotionally wounded. But why, why should we, and hopefully why do we answer those calls anyways? Why do we spend time with them? Well, it's because we also know that the only way an emotionally wounded person is going to be filled up emotionally, find healing, is if someone loves them. And the only way to love them is to be emotionally drained to some degree. The only way to help them heal is through substitutionary sacrifice. See, on the cross, friends, we don't have a bloodthirsty God. What you have is God himself. God the Son, coming to love us. But the only way you love a guilty person, a, a broken person, a sinful person, and really love them to change them, is that you have to love them substitutionally. So on the cross, Jesus took our punishment upon himself that he got what we deserved. He stood in our place. Our sin fell upon him. Our guilt fell upon him. And justly, God's judgment fell upon him as a result. He took it upon himself so that we could be forgiven and set free. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, before I wrap up, let me just point out one last thing that Jesus did here to break from the traditional Passover meal. You see, after the third cup, the normal conclusion of the meal was to drink a fourth and final cup, which represented God's future promise of rich communion between him and his people. But Jesus, in this super odd Passover meal, has got his disciples just thinking, what in the world's going on? Jesus on that night doesn't end with the fourth cup. Then instead, after drinking the third cup, he says this. He says, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new, in the kingdom of God. And friends, that was a promise. Do you hear the promise that Jesus is making there? 
See, Jesus is promising that as a result of his substitutionary death in their place, there will be a day when we will share another meal with Jesus. And he will, at that point, drink the cup again. You, you could say that actually the purpose of this entire meal, or really the purpose of what this meal pointed to, Jesus' death on our behalf, was to secure for us another greater meal with Jesus. That through faith in Jesus' death in our place, God is going to completely renew our relationship with him. And as a result of him, we will one day drink the cup together with him in his kingdom. See, uh, Revelation chapter 19 tells us there's a day coming when we will gather around the mill with Jesus again. And it will be called the uh, marriage supper of the lamb. Jesus will lift up that cup at that time. And he will drink to celebrate that we have become his people. And we will be with him forever. And he will be with us forever. And when he raises that glass, we will raise our glass with him. And no doubt we will say the words of Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Friends, that's the meaning and the purpose of Jesus' death. And that's how he explained it most clearly to his followers. Over a meal. Actually, through a meal. Helping them see that that meal, all along, had been set up providentially by God to ultimately point to him. The ultimate sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, who would die for our sins in our place as our substitute though it would cost him his body being broken and his blood being poured out so that we could be set free from sin and death. That's why Jesus died. And this week, as we head into this Passover week, I mean this <laughs> Holy Week leading up to Good Friday and Easter, I just, want, I just want to encourage you to keep that on the forefront of your mind. This is why we celebrate. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Mm-hmm.